This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'd like to welcome you to the Rady Children's Hospital and UCSD Department of Pediatrics Grand Rounds, and it's also the 17th annual Lenore Hamburger Lectureship. This year, um, our Lenore Hamburger speaker is Dr. Hannah Valentine. Uh, she is Chief Officer uh, of the Scientific Workforce, Workforce Diversity at the NIH and also a Senior Investigator at NHLBI in Bethesda. Um, prior to this, she was Dean of Diversity at Stanford. Um, she actually was born in Gambia, um, grew up mostly in the UK, and actually got her undergraduate medical training, uh, me- medical uni- uh, MD and PhD, and uh, medical internship, and the beginning of her cardiology fellowship all in the UK at London University and Hammersmith Hospital, um, and then uh, went for further training in cardiology at Stanford, where she stayed for 30 years. Um, her research interests have focused mostly on heart transplantation, um, with uh, the focus on the causes and the treatment of allograft failure. Um, she's published over 160 articles, many in very high-impact journals, uh, 10 book chapters, and she's given over 100 lectures all over the country and all over the world. Um, and she's also won numerous awards. Um, please welcome Dr. Hannah Valentine. Thank you, Dr. Hoffman, for that lovely introduction. I must say I'm delighted and uh, indeed very honored to be invited to give this lectureship today. Um, I see in the audience many uh, people whom I know well who have been friends and uh, colleagues through the years. And uh, since I've spent so much of my time uh, and formative uh, career in, uh, in California, uh, uh, Dr. Hoffman, I just wanted to point out that I didn't spend 30 years in training. <laughs> um, I, uh, I went to California, uh, to Stanford, at the end of my clinical cardiology training for what was supposed to be uh, one year to get my BTA. And if you don't know what that is, it's been to America. Uh, and um, that ended up to be 30 wonderful years. So, um, And then, uh, of course, um, uh, two years ago, I was recruited to the NIH to lead their diversity efforts. And I'm not going to be speaking very much about uh, what we do there, but just to say that um, these new uh, efforts of NIH in diversity are really uh, an an example of how the great commitment there is to uh, addressing this issue. And we are really reframing uh, the language around diversity as more as an opportunity, an opportunity to engage the entire uh, intellectual workforce uh, uh, in the United States to this uh, science endeavor. We recognize that, um, that, that the diversity of thought, diversity of perspectives, diversity of experiences has a great um, potential to enhance the science itself. Uh, so while the evidence for that uh, needs to be buttressed uh, with, with regards to science, there's a lot of evidence outside of the scientific field that points to the fact that when you have diversity in teams, you're much more likely to solve complex problems. And given the complex problems that face health and health disparities in particular, we think that uh, ensuring that our workforce is diverse, truly diverse, uh, will will, will support the NIH mission. And I'll be happy to take questions about that uh, later on. 
But what I'd like to do is uh, in this lecture is to focus on the science, uh, the area in which I have worked for the last uh, 30 years or so. Um, I'll start, and this is in the field of heart, heart transplantation. I'll start by presenting a case, indeed a pediatric case initially. Um, I'll point to the medical need for why it is we need these newer technologies brought rapidly to the clinic for the care of this particular patient population. Um, I'll talk about what this new idea is, or relatively new idea. In fact, it's not entirely new. It's just that we now have ways of using uh, technologies for measuring cell-free DNA uh, in a quantitative way. And I'll point to how that can ultimately result in really personalizing the care. And we'll talk about future directions. So the, this is um, a patient who was 29 uh, by the time I met her, but she'd already had a heart transplant 17 years ago. And it was for familial cardiomyopathy. In fact, her brother had presented with cardiac failure at the age of 11 um, and was, um, was not taken care of, uh, rapidly, unfortunately died. She, was, um, she had a twin sister and both of them presented ultimately with heart failure. And both of them were, had uh, tremendous uh, care at Texas Heart Hospital, actually, uh, where they both uh, underwent heart transplantation. And they did extremely well for 17 years. Ultimately, uh, she relocated to the Bay Area with her husband, and we met her at Stanford when she was three months pregnant. Uh, she did very well. Her initial uh, studies were all normal. She had normal cardiac function and eventually gave birth to a baby uh, uh, um, uncomplicated. And I'd just like to show you her echocardiogram um, when we saw her. And um, for those of you who are not used to looking at this, this is the four-chamber view. The apex is the left ventricle. And what I'm trying to show you here is that the contractility is very good. So she, she's presenting, she has normal cardiac function at the time when we first see her ejection fraction of 65%. Unfortunately, uh, a few months after her delivery, she presents in severe heart failure and cardiogenic shock. Her ejection fraction is 25%. Her biopsy actually only shows mild rejection. Um, but she does have HLA-positive uh, antibodies, which are actually directed to the HLA type of the child. So what had happened is that the HLA that uh, should develop antibodies to the child that, uh, because of the difference uh, with, her, with her husband. And this case has been reported, so, and it's not the emphasis of that. But, but just to point out that she did, in fact, have moderate coronary artery disease through the workoff. And so we uh, started uh, on heart failure regimen and put her for a retransplant. And uh, here you see is the original echocardiogram um, on the uh, left-hand side. And here, when she presented with a markedly reduced ejection fraction, just look at the borders of this uh, endocardial borders and how little it's contracting in. And you can see the problem that we're faced with there. And this is the um, peristernal long axis view where you can see that it's the thinning of the septum and really quite severe um, cardiac dysfunction. This is her coronary angiogram. And what I'm attempting to show you here is that this is the injection uh, into the left anterior descending coronary artery. And if you look round about here, 
you're seeing a lot of um, really uh, poor uh, non um, uh, uh, poor uh, profusion of the vessel distally and, and a lot of it uh, taken away uh, with the peripheral vascular disease that we, we see so typically of transplant vasculopathy. I'm just showing you this because to emphasize one of the problems that we have with these patients is that uh, the uh, coronary artery disease long term, it's very difficult to diagnose even by coronary angiography. And this is an example of another patient that I took care of. And I think any cardiologist will say that that coronary angiogram looks uh, uh, reasonable. But when you look here with an intravascular ultrasound, you see all of that is thickened plaque, which shouldn't be there. So the angiogram grossly underestimates this disease. So it's not surprising that our patient uh, in the way that she presents uh, with severe coronary disease that has gone undetected. And this further emphasizes this uh, difficulty in diagnosing this problem uh, of coronary disease. You can see again here in this uh, section here with a coronary, uh, intracoronary uh, ultrasound, you can see already there is plaque formation around here. And by coronary angiography, you wouldn't have thought that there was anything going on at this level here, significant plaque uh, thickening already. And then at C, even where the coronary angiogram looks normal, there is already some severe thickening of the intima uh, and, um, and di diminution of the vessel dimension. This is uh, to show you uh, how this can uh, progress uh, with uh, thickening at left ventricular hypertrophy. And right about here, uh, you can see that the coronary arteries are thickened, is thickened even gro on gross pathology with a real diminution of the size of the artery. And what is I'm trying, attempting to show you here, that this is an inflammatory process. There is some tremendous thickening of the uh, internal uh, lamina, uh, internal um, uh, lining of the, vasc of the vessel wall. Uh, there is intimal proliferation uh, as well as inflammatory response. So luckily, uh, she received a heart, and this is the echocardiogram of the retransplanted heart, which is now fun functioning beautifully, and she went on with her life um, to do uh, very well and serving now very frequently as an adv advocate for uh, transplantation. And here is her daughter. Uh, here's the patient at uh, one year post-transplant doing extremely well, and that was about six, seven years ago. Um, so um, we, we, we were just delighted by this. But this is a major problem, isn't it? And if you look at the, this is to show you the median survival of pediatric heart transplants throughout. Uh, the median survival is 13 years. Uh, that is the time at which uh, half of the patients will be no longer uh, alive, uh, shown in the uh, blue uh, line here and broken down by various uh, age groups with the youngest having the best. So while they are um, doing well for overall survival, it's not optimal, and um, we need some other ways of managing them. And the first one, the first challenge is how we manage patients for detection of acute rejection. And it's classically the gold standard is using an endomyocardial biopsy where we uh, go through the internal jugular vein here. I've done that as many, must have done thousands of these myself. Um, it is, uh, it is uh, invasive, as you all know. 
Um, it can result in, uh, in uh, damage to the tricuspid valve, uh, in it perforations. And um, the concordance of the biopsy reading uh, between, between pathologists is not great, 58%. Uh, and beyond that, it is very expensive um, to do these uh, procedures. So a lot of my research uh, uh, has been focused on coming up with a non-invasive way of, doing, of monitoring rejection after organ transplantation. And this is particularly relevant, obviously, for the pediatric uh, population. Uh, uh, moreover, a lot of the time the rejection is now asymptomatic and by the time you wait until it's, you see uh, evidence of heart failure, it's really too late uh, akin to the, uh, the patient. So what can we do about that? So this um, idea that we might uh, use donor-derived selfie DNA has come about. Um, and I'll go through what the technology looks like. Um, but just a few facts about uh, why it is that the selfie DNA might be helpful. Actually, we all have quite a lot of uh, cell-free DNA circulating in the blood as a result of turnover of a number of uh, different types of cells. It can be found in the urine, plasma, saliva, and many other uh, uh, fluids. So it's, we can get access to it to measure that baseline level of, uh, of, of damage to tissues that's going on. It's generally double-stranded, but I can, I'll show you evidence that uh, microbial DNA can be also targeted for, to be picked up and it's single-stranded. And uh, it is uh, circulating as mononucleosomes and cleared uh, with a relatively uh, short half-life, uh, as shown here. So um, it, there is a history of using cell-free DNA for diagnosis. So um, like most things that we come to in clinical research, uh, if you search the literature, you'll find that some work has already been uh, done. Uh, it's been used for prenatal diagnosis and, and for uh, determining fetal sex. Uh, a big area where it's being used is in, uh, as a cancer biomarker. And uh, many studies have shown that just the average cell-free, total cell-free DNA in the circulation can be a marker of uh, a cancer. And it has been used now. There's a number of studies for staging and assessing response to therapy. In your own field uh, here, it's been used in autoimmune diseases um, and uh, to, for measuring uh, tissue injury uh, following stroke uh, myocardial infarction and finally for viral uh, infections. So when we came to this, we were wondering about how this could be applied to transplantation. And it seemed like sort of that low-hanging fruit. Here you have two genomes, and perhaps you can be able to detect what's coming from the donor as opposed to what's coming from the recipient. But in fact, uh, these ideas were already in the literature. Um, the re in renal transplants in the late 90s, they'd started looking at donor-derived cell-free DNA in the urine. And um, in uh, later on, looking for the amount of the Y chromosome for a, in, a, in a patient who, had, who was female and received a, don a, a kidney from a male donor. So you can see the genesis of these thinking uh, had already been in place uh, when we got into it. And in fact, um, uh, this is uh, when I, when I um, 
heard about this work, it's, it's really quite interesting how when you're in an environment, in an institution where uh, interdisciplinary research is supported and fostered, how these things can happen. So Steve Quake was uh, re- recruited to Stanford um, and very soon after published this paper for the non-invasive diagnosis of fetal aneuploidy uh, using shotgun sequencing. That is looking, taking blood uh, from the mother and be able to to pick up sequences that have crossed the placenta and uh, entered the circulation. And they reported that this was a very uh, effective way. And I remember the moment reading this paper in my office and recognizing that Steve's office was just across the way at the Clark Center, uh, setting up a meeting with him and, uh, and uh, bringing up the idea that maybe this technology could be applied to the patient populations that we were interested in. And here's was his quote. Um, essentially, the uh, organ transplant is a genome transplant. And of course, um, he predicted, uh, as I did, that this would be a very effective uh, way of monitoring rejection. And in fact, we set about doing a proof of concept experiment, which was published in PANS, uh, using actually archived blood specimens that we'd had uh, around for quite a while, serum specimens from uh, transplant patients. And that uh, then led to a bigger study of uh, 60 patients and 500 samples, which was ultimately published last year in Science Translational Medicine. And then as a consequence of all of this, beginning to look at uh, for uh, microbial sequences and that implication, and I'll talk about that in a moment as well. And uh, Steve, together with Eric Topol, wrote this article last year about this, uh, the, the, a stethoscope for the next 200 years, uh, referring to this technique and to all other techniques and because of the specificity of d- DNA and RNA sequencing and how that can be brought to bear um, in diagnosis of all kinds of diseases. So here's the technology that I'd like to spend a few minutes uh, telling you about. It is actually, we use SNPs, Uh, positions in which the donor and recipient are homozygous within a single base pair uh, present in both alleles, and that allows for discrimination between donor and recipient-derived sequences. And so what you see here, as I mentioned before, there are over a billion fragments of cell-free DNA per mil in the plasma circulating at any one time, coming from the recipient um, demonstrated here in red. And when you put in a heart, what you can see is, in fact, uh, as represented by green, as the organ gets damaged, you can see more and more sequences coming from the transplanted organ. And the big question to us at that time, three years ago, could you measure the proportion of donor-derived uh, DNA to recipient, and that give you a marker of injury, an early injury at that? And uh, as I mentioned, the answer to that question was yes, uh, through using the uh, archive specimens that we had. And here, what we're showing you here is a percent donor uh, DNA in Manspro's transplant. And in a situation where there was no rejection, you had low levels of less than 1% of the, of the donor-derived DNA uh, compared to the, recipient, to the recipient circulating DNA. In contrast, 
at the beginning of rejection, you see a gradual rise in the uh, DNA from the donor, as shown in this section and, and, and there as well. So here we have, we thought we had proved, uh, uh, demonstrated proof of concept, but that was only in seven patients and in 50 samples. So clearly we need to do, to do more. And just a little bit more about the technology, you genotype the donor and recipient, and there are now approaches to circumvent the need for that, and we can talk about it, collect uh, the cell-free DNA from the plasma, uh, perform sh shotgun sequencing to identify the reads with donor and recipient SNPs, and then you calculate the percent DNA, and this is what uh, it, it shows. And this is uh, a graphic from the article that was ult ultimately uh, published in Science Translational Medicine. And just to get into the details of it here, these are the uh, SNPs uh, from the uh, done pre-transplant from the donor and the recipient. And you will notice that here there is a difference. The CG here, which does not... Um, appear here, and then you see it, um, you collect the sample, and you can uh, then uh, follow it uh, here, and, uh, and then perform the sequencing and, uh, and get, calculate a percentage. So what, do you, what was the study design, as shown here, uh, notice the, uh, we made a, a concerted effort to include pediatric patients, so it was half the, um, a, a quarter of the, the, the population there, a third of the population, uh, 21 pediatric patients, pre-transplant, you collect the sample, purify the sequence, purify and, and sequence the cell-free DNA, and then they calculate the fraction of donor-derived DNA and compare to the grade of biopsy. And here's what we uh, would expect uh, in the absence of rejection. What you see is that immediately after transplant, of course, as might be predicted, there are the percentage of the donor-derived DNA is relatively high. You can see up to 10% compared to circulating. But there's a rapid decay, uh, and uh, bear in mind this when I talk about lung transplant in a moment, um, and then uh, there's quiescence here in the absence of any further injury. In contrast to that, here is a patient who develops um, uh, a rejection episode uh, right here by endomyocardial biopsy, um, and then uh, and then following treatment it uh, declines again, con uh, confirming the results that we had published in the uh, proof of concept experiments. And this particular patient is a pediatric patient, this particular example. Uh, often we're plagued with not only cellular rejection, but antibody-mediated rejection. And so in this early phase, this patient was diagnosed with, uh, with uh, cellular rejection. Uh, uh, th uh, the 2R, meaning there is evidence of myocyte necrosis. And you can see the rise in the fraction of the donor DNA. The patients get treated uh, with high-dose corticosteroids, a slight decline, but to our great uh, concern, we see a rise in the fraction of donor DNA, and that's coincident with a biopsy that shows um, now uh, antibody-mediated rejection, patient treated again, and so forth, and that's how you uh, follow this. And I think that mirrors the, the time course very uh, nicely. And so for the 
60 or so patients that were in the study. We've divided this um, uh, into the quiescent, that's no rejection, mild rejection, and moderate severe rejection. And you can see the, the fraction uh, of donor-derived DNA. But I think this is the most telling over here where we try to ca uh, calculate the receiver operating characteristics. And this is when you have a new test, you've got to be uh, certain that the true-false positive rates and the true-false uh, 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 true positive and true-false negative rates, should uh, you plot them out here, and if it's uh, absolutely um, uh, correlating, then it should be a straight line. When here the AUC is 0.825%, uh, 0.825, which is really uh, not bad at all, especially when we know that many of the false positives turn out to actually be not false positives, but in fact that the biopsy was incorrect. So I put this up here because it really points to the pediatric population. If you calculate those ACUs over time, there's a variation with a time post-transplant. Uh, and here, uh, what I'm showing you here is the pediatric, um, uh, the, uh, the, AC, the ACUs by uh, years, um, by uh, age post-transplant. And you can see that the ACU is particularly high for pediatric patients. And uh, shown over this slide here, it's 0.92. So uh, this, is a, um, uh, this is a very um, sensitive and specific way of looking at this, we believe, and, uh, but will require the next a set of studies, which is a further external validation, uh, being, bearing in mind that this just comes from one center, and uh, a clinical utility study. So this brings us to the question of, if this works in heart, can it work in other organ transplants? And the concept, uh, conceptually, uh, the answer to that should be yes. And we have data around, around the uh, four lung transplants that uh, suggest that this will work there as well. So why lung transplants? Well, uh, in contrast to heart transplantation, the, out, uh, the outcome uh, following lung transplantation is particularly uh, poor. It's inferior. The probability of survival at a year is uh, only 80%, and the median survival rates are much lower. I showed you median survival rates of 11, uh, uh, of 11 years or so for the uh, uh, heart transplant, and here it's about six years. So we really believe there's a lot of injury that is immune-mediated going on that we are not picking up um, that we could do a better job in, um, in, in the lung transplant field as well. So we have, uh, within this cohort uh, at Stanford, been following these patients using donor-derived DNA technology. And I put this up to show you two distinct patterns. The, that is the, the type of decay early post-transplant. So here in red is the heart uh, decay, which I already showed you where the, the percent DNA is rather high at the beginning, but there's a rapid decline and then it's, uh, it's, it remains low uh, if there is no further injury. In contrast with the lungs, and you could, this is better depicted down here, you will see that there is a much slower decay um, and a first phase and then a, a second phase. And this raises the question of whether or not these graphs are getting in there already more injured 
And because they're more injured, they are more prone to the, uh, activating the uh, inflammatory responses. Or whether because of infection, because they are already infected, uh, that they are already uh, prone to injury and, uh, and uh, are more damaged um, and remain more damaged uh, throughout. And that is impacting the long-term outcome. We don't know the answers to that yet, but in terms of acute rejection, just one slide here to show you normal and severe, this uh, uh, the broad uh, percent uh, fraction being higher in the severe rejection in the AUC, again, suggesting that this might be um, a good and sensitive way of following lung transplant. So a lot more work needs to be done in the lung transplant field as well. Um, but these are the early um, proof-of-concept experiments that we believe are, uh, are really helpful. Let's uh, shift gears now for the next uh, while on uh, the issue of uh, following patients for infection. Um, we are uh, really challenged in organ transplantation because of this narrow therapeutic window where we can, when we, um, we treat for, to prevent rejection, but we leave the patients open and prone to infection. So we've got to find that uh, therapeutic window where we ha have give enough immunosuppression to prevent rejection, but not, uh, not uh, uh, stimulating or not enhancing the possibility of infection. And so uh, this becomes quite uh, problematic because there is not a specific test that tells us the level of immunosuppression. And now, of course, we know there's a wide variation in how individuals respond to individual immunosuppressive drugs. So, for example, African-Americans will metabolize um, uh, the calcineurin antagonist, uh, which is the mainstay of uh, immunosuppression, in a different way from, uh, from others. And so that the blood level required to give you the needed uh, anti-rejection effect is rather different. And so we are on a, a, qu a quest for finding a tool that can be individualized to a patient to measure their level of immune suppression. And we think that the measurement of some of these um, uh, atypical uh, viral uh, um, infections might give us a handle on that. But just to let you know that when we started doing this work, it became very clear that uh, in addition to uh, human uh, uh, viromes uh, that we could uh, detect, we could also, there was also non-human DNA that could be detected in these uh, samples. And when we uh, dug a little bit deeply into it, we found that the vast majority of these non-human sequences were actually viruses, both single-stranded and double-stranded. And in fact, the most abundant was the anenovirus, which in fact uh, is, um, has been associated with, uh, in HIV to be uh, a potential for pathogenesis, but really has not been a, a real target for, for causing um, infection per se, clinically relevant infection in patients. And so when we started monitoring them, we, we observed a sort of a pattern in the change of the microbiome, which I'll show you here. And represented here in orange is the um, anenovirus. 
And so at the beginning, before uh, at the onset of therapy, the largest proportion are the herpes viruses. But of course, we give anti, uh, uh, antiviral agents at the beginning of the transplant to everybody. So with time, as I'll show you, the, uh, uh, the herpes virus load decreased. But what happened was that the anilovirus load um, really uh, increased over time. And this was really very interesting to us. And what we showed that later on, as we were tapering off the immunosuppressive drugs, reducing it, the the levels uh, declined. So putting all that together, we began to ask the question whether the anilovirus load uh, had some correlation and some relation to rejection. Put another way, could we distinguish non-rejecting from rejecting by virtue of the anilovirus load. And what you're seeing here is an attempt to do that. Anilovirus, uh, virons per, uh, per uh, human DNA, compared uh, uh, tract at months post-transplant, comparing the non-rejecting group of patients in blue to the rejecting, and clearly a very distinct pattern. And this um, uh, raises the question, whether the anilovirus load can ultimately be uh, used and fine-tuned as a marker for the net immunosuppressive stage. And that's as far as we've got with that. And we hope that more work will be done in that space. So I've presented to you a set of uh, studies and experiments that were done at Stanford from which we could make the following conclusions, especially about uh, rejection monitoring. The first is that donor-derived cell-free DNA is informative uh, as a non-invasive marker for acute rejection in heart and lung transplantation. That measurements of serial donor-derived cell-free DNA might permit earlier detection of rejection. And you saw those patterns of the curves where the the levels rise before uh, we actually make the diagnosis of rejection. Um, and that this might be applicable to all solid organ transplants. And as I mentioned, we need to validate this further and then do clinical utility studies. Does this um, method uh, actually help us to be more effective in managing our patients, especially compared to the current gold standard, which is the endomyocardial biopsy? Then as far as uh, using the technology for microbes, uh, the structure of the virome seems to be strongly affected by uh, immunomodulation and antivirals, and in particular that the total viral load uh, markedly increased at the onset of immunosuppression, and the anilovirus road might be uh, enable us to uh, stratify for rejecting versus non-rejecting. And here, the future directions, clearly, we need to refine the technology to expand this, uh, to use studies, uh, some mechanistic studies of immunoregulation um, uh, uh, and so forth. Let me just uh, end this uh, talk now by talking about how we can bring this um, as um, and leap forward to uh, this idea of personalizing patient care. Can we be thinking about this of monitoring immunity, uh, monitoring host defenses? There's papers that we've published on that. And can we actually use it to investigate racial uh, disparities? And one thing that is very clear in the literature is that regardless of the organ transplant type, 
uh, African-American patients do less well after their organ transplant compared to other uh, racial groups, and in particular to Caucasians. And for the longest time, the question was that it might actually be due to uh, medication compliance or even more recently to uh, differences in drug metabolism. Well, a paper that we published last year suggested that it's neither of those uh, pointing to the possibility of there be a genetic basis to this uh, over and beyond the HLA typing. So more to come on this. But in order to do that, and getting back to the beginning of this talk, we need to be able to have large enough cohorts of various groups of patients to be able to study health disparities work or health differences in outcomes. And this is why I'm so excited about working with the cohorts um, around the DC metropolitan area because those are patient, that patient population has a lot more diversity and we'll be able to uh, study this. And um, when I got to NIH, Part of the reason for going there, in addition to leading the diversity efforts, was to actually take some of this science and set it up. Um, but I quickly realized that there is no organ transplantation at, uh, at NIH. So in order to do this, I've set up a consortium of the five local uh, centers that do organ transplantation, both heart and lung. Um, uh, true to form as a cardiologist, we call this consortium graft because we like acronyms, Genome uh, Research Alliance for Transplantation. And this will bring together these uh, centers to prospectively use these genomic technologies that I've described. And very interestingly, we'll be able to recruit in excess of 130 patients a year to begin to be able to, to, to do this work. And it harnesses the infrastructure of the intramural program where I am with the extramural um, uh, uh, centers to work in a very collaborative way to do this work. And just for your information here, the centers, University of Maryland, Hopkins, uh, uh, MedStar, Washington Hospital, Inova Fairfax, Virginia Commonwealth, and we're all uh, actively recruiting patients already and creating this biobank that we'll be able to do this work on. This work is quite challenging. I don't know whether you're following the, all the story about reproducibility uh, with genomic research, how much of it is and isn't reproducible. So it was clear to me that the first order of the day would be to make sure that we can transfer this technology in a way that's reproducible. So we got some samples from the Stanford cohort where the sequencing had been done, the percent donor-derived DNA had been calculated, and we uh, run it through our own uh, systems to, be, to, to compare uh, what the results would be. And you can see here an example of one patient is that it, there's absolutely almost superimposable results. So we're quite confident that the technology has been uh, transferred. Another challenge is actually getting the technology to be able to be uh, 
be reported rather rapidly. Uh, we can't be waiting for a week to determine whether a patient is rejecting or not. Uh, it has to be a turnaround of within 24 to 48 hours. And there are a number of facilities there within the NIH that we have access to that will help us to be able to, to ramp this up, including uh, automated high-throughput nucleic acid isolation, um, the automated library formation, and next-generation uh, sequencing. And so that we will be able to uh, not have to do a lot of this manually and rather use robots. We've already begun to uh, do that work, uh, to compare it, and you can see that the results using the robot, in fact, are uh, very good. Uh, we're very pleased with that. So our future agenda is that uh, we want to study the genetic basis of the different outcomes after solid organ transplantation. I think this is going to be very exciting work. Um, in addition to uh, nucleic, uh, nuclear-derived DNA, this mitochondrial-derived DNA, which I didn't have time to go into, which again could be measured and could be a very uh, effective way of tracking patients. Uh, strategies for identifying organ-specific oligonucleotides, we're doing that, and that will then push this work into the broader space of injury to all other different uh, kinds of organs. Um, again, miniaturizing these technologies and having them as point of contact will be the um, ultimate goal if we are going to really uh, be successful in this arena of precision medicine, which was the basis of this talk. Um, I pointed, showed you a lot about the issue of the vascular injury and the vascular damage that limits the long-term outcome. Uh, how can we better diagnose it? We believe that uh, a lot of the damage comes from endothelial-derived uh, donor DNA, and it's a marker of that, and uh, perhaps linking up with other technologies that non-invasively can measure the vasculature, such as uh, cardiac MRI, might be helpful for us in the future. I also pointed to microbiome and that work that's, uh, that we're doing, and then uh, the link with immunology and the B and T cell repertoires, which we've already have published preliminary data, is there. So let me just close by acknowledging our uh, collaborators, the clinical team, very critically important, the, uh, the supporters and the providers of the money to do this work cannot be done without, the, uh, without those resources. Um, the collaboration that comes from collaborating with bioengineers uh, and clinical uh, researchers, I think, is critical uh, to move this work forward. But I think the heroes in all of this is our patients, and uh, I always like to recognize them specifically. And this is my, the team in my lab and the other collaborators in this new area that I'm working at at NIH. And I thank you all for your attention. We're happy to take questions. Um, good morning. Thank you so much for your lecture. Um, one of the conundrums in management is the mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic patient uh, who may have a positive test result and whether to biopsy and how to manage that patient. Thank you very much for the question. The question is that one of the conundrums is um, the patient who might have just a, a mild uh, a rejection uh, on the biopsy and how to manage that, especially in the context of, uh, of diminished um, organ function. So um, 
I, I think uh, through the years we've come to recognize that um, the clinical diagnosis takes precedent over all of this. And I would say that um, in a patient who obviously has significant graft function, dysfunction, particularly heart uh, dysfunction. Um, it's uh, an immune-mediated um, uh, d- uh, decline in function uh, until proven otherwise. And for many years at Stanford, I would be faced with that. And we did not have the diagnosis of antibody-mediated rejection, which is now the, the second uh, thing that you would look for following cell-mediated rejection. And I would treat them as though they were rejecting, first with high-dose corticosteroids and secondly even with plasmapheresis uh, and, um, and some other therapies, uh, ATG and so forth. So in summary to your question, I would say, be guided by the clinical presentation of the patient, always going back to that, knowing that the currently available tests are not 100% foolproof. But when this technology comes on board, I think what it's showing is that we might be picking up positive elevated levels of donor-derived DNA before we see anything happening in the, in the patient. And the question is what to do about that. And I think we'll need to study that. I would hypothesize that that actually means early injury and that we could likely intervene earlier by minor increases in the immunosuppression that would make a difference ultimately to the outcome rather than those mammoth doses of corticosteroids that we use and ultimately will be able to have better outcomes. So that sort of set of hypotheses will need to be tested. You mentioned the issue of, of organ-specific DNA, and because what you're looking at is a ratio <clears throat> of donor to recipient, if, you have, if, if the recipient also has dysfunction of another organ, it will affect that ratio. Let's say you had cardiac rejection and you had secondary renal disease. Can you talk a little bit about how you're going about that? Because that seems like a very important line of, of research. Great question. The, the concept of organ-specific uh, sequences uh, within the, has just begun. We have some preliminary data from two weeks ago, which I wasn't uh, going to p- present to you. But um, I think it's a very important uh, question to be thinking about. But I, but, but I would say that what we have, what we're looking at, at donor-specific, truly is donor-specific. There, there will not be those sequences ever coming from the recipient. And that's the beauty of this test at this time, um, in that we're, we're pretty confident that what we see as the sequences that are coming from the, are really coming from the donor and not the recipient. The question is around whether or not detection of mitochondrial DNA has a different implication to uh, detection of, um, of nuclear DNA? I don't really don't know the answer to the, that question. They are very different um, sequences. We are hypothesizing that early injury will be detected by damage, mitochondrial damage and spillage of that mitochondrial sequences into the circulation. 
Uh, but the, the, the characteristics, as you probably know, of mitochondrial DNA are very different from donor DNA. They're shorter fragments and so forth. And so we will be able to tell what we are looking at. Are we looking at mitochondrial or are we looking at nuclear, uh, nuclear DNA? Then we'll be able to answer some of those questions. The, yes, that's a great question. The question is, um, what is the relative contribution of um, different cell types to the uh, DNA that we are measuring? We don't know yet. We haven't done those studies. I think they're highly, highly relevant. Um, I suspect that um, much of what we're seeing in the heart is endothelial-derived, um, and that is why we are particularly interested in figuring out whether or not the amount of damage as measured by cell-free, donor-derived cell-free, has any relationship at all to the allograft vasculopathy. That's where that you know, string of thought comes about. But we haven't yet looked at that, and this is sort of the, the exciting part of this work. The question is around whether or not... Um, the, the use of the microbiome um, might, be, um, might be further uh, uh, studied in, in other areas as a measure of the immune state of immunity. No, um, it hasn't been. I'm not aware. Certainly when we publish the paper in Cell, that nothing been uh, in that arena. Um, I think it will be a very exciting and fruitful area. Um, in fact, as we've set up the collaborative, the uh, study, the graft consortium. Uh, internally, within the intramural program, there are a lot of investigators who are very interested, particularly in this field. And with this large biobank that we'll have, we'll be able to um, to be able to begin to study that. But I think it should be studied out there by, you know, experts in the field as well. I have a question about your first case that you discussed? Um, I guess, first of all, do we know the genetic cause of the um, cardiomyopathy that the patients had? No, um, we don't. Okay. You know, we don't. Um, uh, you know, she was diagnosed now, let's say, 20, 25 years ago before a lot was known before about that. So we didn't go into that. Um, I know that colleagues at Stanford are uh, looking into all the different genetic types of cardiomyopathy, but this one was not studied, sorry. And the second question is related to the pregnancy and the fact that it seemed to contribute to the rejection, and I guess what is known about that, and, and is that something that happens frequently? Yeah, well, this is always, it has always been anecdotal that um, uh, when um, during pregnancy, somehow, by some mechanism unknown, there would be immune activation. So it was a bad idea to, um, to even allow patients to, to have children. This is the recommendation that we gave. And uh, thankfully, a few patients uh, did not pay heed. And uh, then we discovered that, in fact, they could be managed quite well um, and do extremely well, like you saw the, the, this patient. Um, but it is intriguing that um, that you know you could uh, the patient does mount uh, antibodies. I think they're HLA. What we discovered in this patient were HLA driven. It was due to the discordance in the HLA type between her and her husband relative to the first graft. Um, 
The work in that field, um, again, is um, the, I, there is really not that much at the moment. I think most of it is around HLA um, disparities, dis, the, 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 the mismatches. Um, but now, of course, that we have the genomic tools, we can very much figure that out, couldn't we? Yeah. I guess pregnancy can be seen as sort of a transplant in some way as well. Um, all right. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.